All right, ladies and gentlemen, grab your drinks and grab a seat. Good evening. It's a nice warm afternoon here in Melbourne. Um, my name's Peter Graham. I am the Deputy Director of the Centre for Urban Transitions at Swinburne University, also involved with the Swinburne Smart Cities Research Institute and, and also this, the Collaborative Research Centre for Low Carbon Living, which has just had its meetings here in Melbourne um, and concluding this afternoon. We are gathered here this afternoon to talk about uh, getting beyond the buzzwords of smart, sustainable and livable cities. And the proposition really is that smart, sustainable and livable are emergent qualities of a really functioning city. And the question then is, how do you make cities these days function better than they are uh, doing at the moment on all of those sorts of indicators? So we're wanting to bring together an esteemed panel of people who are really at the cutting edge of implementing what we might call digital infrastructure and um, smart ways of thinking uh, and focusing on how we empower the citizens in our urban spaces. So I think the, the previous um, uh, workshop with, with Jenny was talking about augmenting the people. Uh, what we're talking about is how, I suppose, uh, a digitally augmented urban environment helps empower citizens and what that means for the way we can get involved in urban design, the way we can get involved in urban governance, the kind of feedback that we can get just to improve the way we live our, our lives daily, and then the way the, the, the sort of feedback we can get when we live in cities for, for just improving um, the way existing city infrastructure operates. And we hope in that way leads to more sustainable, smart and liveable cities. So what I'd like to do first of all is to introduce our panel and our panel has come from far and wide to be here and feeling the, the pain of intercontinental um, jet lag as well. So first of all I'd like to introduce Aredi Markopoulou. Aredi from, from Barcelona uh, arrived at midnight last night so it's fine because it's now morning in Europe so you'll be fine. Um, She's Academic Director of the Institute for Advanced Architecture in Catalonia in Barcelona um, and is really involved in, um, I suppose, how you can bring feedback from, from uh, the public space into urban design and how that encourages people to get involved and, and the cutting edge now, I suppose, of what we can do with, with design education and what, we, and what that means for, I guess, an action learning uh, in the built environment as well. So welcome. Uh, if you do feel sleepy, I think they serve coffee over there as well. You'll be fine. Okay, great. Um, next we have Jane Burry. Jane is the, um, the, the Dean of the School of Design at, uh, at Swinburne University of Technology, starting a new architecture program. And it's really exciting to be thinking about what you can do with Jane's experience in, um, in architecture, uh, including uh, working on the Sagrada Familia Basilica in Barcelona, what you can do with um, your experience with mathematics for architecture um, and, and a real understanding of how um, technology can inform design. And you get to start a new architecture program now, at this day and age. It's, it's really quite an amazing opportunity. And... Um, I think it also forces us to rethink 
our relationship with the built environment and how we interact with the natural environment uh, and how we integrate our, our, um, our uh, senses back into the design process. So welcome, Jane. Justin Madden. Hi. Justin Madden, um, you might know uh, from a number of different lives that you've led. Uh, footballer, politician, and now um, in leading the cities program at Arup here in Melbourne. Um, Justin says that he's cautiously um, enthusiastic about the future with smart cities. Uh, caution from the political lens, enthusiastic from the, the lens of being involved in the, in the consultancy world. So thanks for coming, Justin. Um, Lucinda Hartley. Lucinda is um, a real, uh, I guess, agent provocateur here in Melbourne, uh, um, someone who is, is a designer and a social entrepreneur who's um, walking the talk by actually starting um, social enterprises which engage citizens in, in co-design uh, and also now starting to look at how data can inform, um, uh, I suppose, the way businesses and communities interact in, in local areas. So it's great to have you here to give us a real practical Melbourne um, view. Peter Madden, our other very f um, well-travelled panellist. Uh, Peter is a very, um, very, very experienced person in this area of smart cities. He's the director of EcoVivid, a company which is um, advising on smart sustainability. He's been the CEO of Future Cities Catapult, which is a centre of expertise on urban innovation. Um, he's been involved with Forum of the Future, which has been a sustainability non-profit, and he has an OBE for services to sustainability. So thanks for joining us, um, Peter, and uh, we want to really find out uh, what's been going on over there in the UK and, uh, and where we can take some of those ideas forward. Terrific. Uh, welcome to you all. I'd like to perhaps call Areti to come up first and share your experiences. Sure. Thank you, Peter. Thank you to the Swinburne Institute of Technology for bringing myself and my colleague, uh, Matilde, from Barcelona. We are a bit jet lagged, but we hope that we are able to stand in, in the occasion. So um, I'm also... Very excited to be among uh, people, experts from the smart cities. There is no doubt that there is a new generation of cities that they are emerging. Um, the majority of, of us call it smart city. I don't think if that cities were stupid at any moment of the history, but uh, uh, in any case, when we are talking about smart cities, we believe that uh, uh, it's the application of the information and communication technologies into the urban environments, and how can those optimize and make uh, more efficient the performances on our cities. And there is no doubt that in the information aids that we are talking about accumulation of data, uh, accumulation of data that they are probably distributed uh, from different uh, nodes, um, there is an issue related to that data. And the first one is uh, who owns the data? 
right? There is a big issue about data is the future oil, and there is a big issue uh, a bit ago we were discussing about the fact that uh, uh, Google, Apple did it as well, uh, like um, uh, the year, one year ago, but Google is tracking our GPS uh, position even if we have the app switched off, no? Which is a bit weird because then all of a sudden our data, even though we don't authorize it, uh, they are becoming part of the, of the big companies. So my point of view today and what I want to maybe contribute to the discussion is, um, of course, that the data should be owned by the citizens, but also how we can start designing with the data. Because all this kind of model of smart city, it created a kind of a hidden layer of digital values, numeric values, that they became or they stay, let's say, separate from the physicality or the materiality of the city. So how we design in that moment of information and even more in that moment of experience and participation, uh, I would like that I contribute to. So um, we back in Barcelona and back in the Institute for Advanced Architecture of Catalonia, we tried to see how the different technologies, information, communication, interaction, responsive technologies can uh, contribute into different design processes. First of all, because at the moment that we are able to collect data in real time and, real, and data changes every second, then as designers, we also have the responsibility in a way to design uh, in a more dynamic way. So we cannot keep on designing static environments. So the approaches that we are um, working on I will just name two for the sake of the five-minute talk, but we can have a, um, a longer discussion after that. The first one is the materiality of our cities, the matter. Whereas the matter is physical, whereas the matter is digital, or whereas the matter is mixed and augmented. In the previous panel, we have been discussing about the mixed realities, uh, um, the technologies of virtual and augmented reality, as well as gaming. So... Those technologies, we're using them on the one hand to create more co-creative processes, co-producing processes. For a long time, the architects thought that it, would, uh, it was the one that was deciding the different forms and the different spaces to create. No, but this has been uh, a very, uh, this has basically led into environments that they are being designed before even knowing who is the user that is inhabiting it. So this is one big challenge, how we can start designing with the data, designing with the people, uh, not as final aesthetics or final form creators, but rather as mediators, no? Our discipline is changing. We're becoming mediators of processes of co-creation and processes of co-design. So different technologies can be used there, from gaming technologies to virtual and augmented reality to user uh, interfaces and urban apps. But what it is important is to understand that the designer is not anymore the final form creator, but he or she is responsible to create those processes that at the end would create adaptive spaces. And talking about adaptive spaces, that would be my second point and would be related to matter. No, for a long time, architects, we thought that if our materials change, that is a big problem. No? If the concrete is, is, is erosing or if the, our materials are, being, are changing state, that would be a problem. But advances in the material sciences, coupled with synthetic biology, coupled with cybernetics, they are bringing us new advanced materials that they are able to change their shape 
to change their state, and this is inherited in the properties of the material. So there is no need of any extra plugged system of electronic or motor or mechanized system. And we can take advantage as designers of those changes of the materials in order to create adaptive behaviors. So can we create a facade of a building that it is able to expand in its volume to uh, absorb water and then to evaporate that water in order to create a passive, micro, a, a passive cooling system for creating microclimate. That would be fantastic and we do have the materials such as hydrogel or polymorphs that they allow us to do so without any mechanized systems. The same goes to bacteria or to synthetic biology like using for instance moss or using uh, plants and the photosynthetic processes of the plants in order to generate energy. So that would be my, sec that would be my second and last point. I don't know if I am out of the five minutes. I have more? Oh, fantastic. Uh, uh, so my second point is to reconsider which is the matter that we are working on. Uh, materials can be intelligent, they can be adaptive, and they can help us to design more dynamic spaces that they are able to be more in sync with the environment, but also more in sync with the different needs of, of, of the users. And um, uh, finally, just to say that um, matter matters, so, whereas it's physical, whereas it, it is intelligent, whereas it is digital and augmented for um, um, the, the age of the experience and participation we are living in, it becomes a fundamental key for designers, architects and urbanists to think of how all those flying data can be start to materialize and, 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 and affect the physicality of our spaces so that they can become more adaptive and more dynamic um, um, in its operation and performance. So from the form, we are passing to the performance, and therefore there is a challenge of how designers can design performances rather than forms, and how can we design processes rather than final aesthetics. Thank you. Great. So before we move, I just wanted to introduce David Singleton, who is our, uh, another panellist who was stuck in traffic. So you're experiencing the dumb city, I suppose, David. Um, chair of the Smart Cities Research Institute, um, former um, executive at Arup. So we'll be drawing on your experience as well. Um, Justin, you can take the roving mic. Um, are you more cautious or... Well, look, I'm, I'm enthusiastic, but I'm cautious at the same time. And my cautiousness is based probably on my, uh, my experience in state politics here. And, uh, and I wanted to explain to you a couple of uh, case studies or examples which I think sort of prove why you might want to be cautious in the process. But uh, this, this cautiousness arose not only from experience, but also because some years ago I attended a smart cities conference. And it was a great conference. It was, not, not surprisingly, sponsored by a lot of the technology companies. And uh, they were all talking up this wonderful smart technology. And I could see, you know, how it could be used and applied. <clears throat> but I was very tempted to stand up very early on and just say, look, can we just slow this down a bit? Because what seemed to be the case was every time <clears throat> they talked about the technology, it had the word smart in front of it. And every time I'd been uh, in the process of implementing a smart technology, it seemed to not go very well. 
And those were basically, I'll give you two examples. And for many of you who may have travelled here by public transport today, right, um, like myself, the Mikey card, you know, that smart technology has taken some time to actually come together and work properly. And, and this is the challenge sometimes with the technology is if we think we can just overlay the technology on a standalone pre-existing system, we sometimes find ourselves um, falling into the trap of trying to improve the status quo rather than reconfiguring the system as it should be. So Melbourne has one of the most complex ticketing systems in the world by virtue of the number of types of public transport. We have the good fortune to have trams, trains, buses, but as well as that, we have um, a whole series of concessions. So, you know, students, children, um, concession holders, adults, pensioners, all those types. So we've got a number of variables already. And then just to make it a bit more complicated, what we've, what many years ago somebody devised was a, a, a time system. So when you get into the system, your time for how long you're in it. Whereas just about every other transport system is timed on a gateway system. The ticket gets you in and it gets you out. So if you, I go to Hong Kong and I get on the MTM, it'll get me onto one line and I can stay on that line all day long. But when I leave that line, it charges me. And then I'll go down an escalator and I'll get to the next line. And it'll charge, you know, tickets me on, but charges me when I get off or, or that sort of arrangement. So it's just a gateway system. But the system in Melbourne, because at the end of the day, somewhere in some big, um, you know, some big database somewhere, they had to accumulate all the information derived from every passenger on the system for every second of the day to work out whether they'd been in a three-hour slot or whether they'd been in a 24-hour slot meant that for every second of the day you were accountable in terms of the data, which isn't a bad thing in a theoretical sense, but in a practical sense it meant that the accumulation of that data had to be processed at the end of the day and hence the system was pretty slow. And that's where the sort of problems arose. So the challenge with this is often rather than overlay the thinking onto existing systems, the great challenge is to take up the opportunity sometimes to reconfigure the system rather than think the technology is going to do that for you. So that's the first bit. The other example was smart meters. Smart meters are a very smart idea in that sense. But the difficulty with a smart meter is when you have people who are not quite sure of what it all means and what the application is for and whether it's going to improve their lives, you know, that's a, that's a critical issue because if you don't understand why you are receiving a smart meter <clears throat> and there are rumours that it might be filled with radiation or they might blow up or all these sorts of things, then that becomes a very significant challenge as to how you roll that out. Now, the benefits of electronic or electric metering for your electricity supply, the intention of that was based on the idea that you would be able to monitor your own electricity usage and then you could, as a government... Uh, give incentives or disincentives at peak demand so you wouldn't have to build another, another coal-fired power plant so that when the... Um, on a day when you've got 40 degrees for two hours in Melbourne, happens probably, you know, 12, 15 days a year, uh, do you need every building cooled with all the air conditioning that you might want? Probably not. You've got a house uh, 
you might have five air conditioners, you might live in a flat, you might have one. Now, the person with one air conditioner is being charged at the same rate as the person with five air conditioners. So in some ways, the person in the single, with the single air conditioner is subsidising the person with the five air conditioners. A- and smart metering was supposed to give an incentive to the person to use less. So you use one room, one air conditioner at peak, so there's less demand on the system. And then um, the person who had five air conditioners on because they've got a big house, um, then they'd probably be charged a bit more. That was the general intent. But it never got to that point because it all got too hard in a political sense. And that's the great challenge of any of the data collection, any of the data usage, any of the smart technologies. At the end of the day, you do have to deal with real human beings and real people and you've got to convince them and communicate to them the benefits. And the other great challenge of that is that um, you've got to value each and every citizen. Easier said than done. Because when you're taking a systems-based approach, it makes it pretty hard to ensure that everybody is relatively satisfied. So if you roll out, let's say, some of the water, um, the water corporations begin to roll out smart metering in terms of water metering, it sounds pretty good. Everyone will want to you know, join in and monitor their water usage. But the challenge there will be, what happens if... I don't want a smart meter. How does, and how does a smart meter appear on my bill? If there's a $200 bill for a smart meter and I don't know how it's going to improve my life, do I want it? I may not want it. Then are they ameliorated across other bills? The cost of service, your one standalone old-time meter to have the meter reader come out and look at your meter in your street rather than do it online, am I being charged for that personally or is it part of the conundrum of ameliorating it right across the system. So there are some significant challenges in terms of what the, you know, the, the, the smart technology does or doesn't do in terms of an individual citizen level and how that is um, dealt with. And I think that's probably the greatest challenge of the technology. And just very quickly, uh, one, um, uh, one last item in terms of, uh, of all those challenges is it has to complement an overall strategy. If you just want to be smart for smart's sake, if you just want to be sustainable for sustainable sake, you know, that's when they become buzzwords and cliches rather than if they're embedded into what you want to achieve and the community and the city um, join in to wanting to deliver that. Easier said than done. Thanks very much. Thanks, Justin. Yes, I'm not... I think paraphrasing you, but it, it sounded like smart gets too hard in a political sense sometimes. And um, we can come back to that. Depends how smart the politicians are, I suppose. Um, just, uh, you may have got these from Jenny before, but we've, ha- we've got some, um, some Twitter handles, uh, hashtag, hashtag smart citizen, if you want to tweet and, and be part of the digital conversation. Oh, you will? Okay, I'll just keep one. Jenny is going to hand them around. Um, okay. Peter. Um, one of the things I got also from Justin is that uh, we're talking about data accumulation, and it seems like data accumulation can be used in dumb ways as well as in smart ways. And, and uh, Peter was talking in an earlier conference about uh, things like, um, well, transportation apps, which use data in very smart ways. So let me lead into what you want to say. Thank you. So... Um, could 
I think it's evening now, and it's still very warm. Um, good evening, everybody. Um, so I'm going to talk to you about a concept called mobility as a service. Um, but I want to start with this thought, that, that the future city, our world, is going to be data-rich. Okay? This year alone, 2017, this year alone, we're going to create more data than we did in the entire 5,000 years before of human history. So in one year, we'll create more data than ever before, anywhere, anytime in human history. So this big data will be combined with Internet of Things, predictive and analytics, artificial intelligence, automation. All these digital tools will overlay our cities and allow us to understand them and hopefully interact with them in new and better ways. So data will be our future. It will be digital. It allows us to interact with the city differently. So what does this mean for us as citizens? Well, I think it depends. There's kind of one view of smart cities that's kind of fantasy of control. And I go to places and they say, you know, we want a city control room. And you go into them and it looks like NASA, you know, NASA Space Center, banks of monitors and so on, and guys sitting there, you know, controlling the city from the center. And, um, of course, you know, that's not my vision. I think IBM have even created, you know, two or three of those around the world. But, you know, that's not the vision. It's how can you make this data? to work for the citizen. And I want to talk about this in the, in the realm of transport. And transport, often, the transport planners, the transport geeks, they can't help themselves. They start with the modes of transport. You know, that's, that's what gets excited, excited, the kit. And they start, they start with the car, and they start with the train, they start with the, the, the um, infrastructures, they start with roads, and they start with rails. And th these guys, the way that they think they'll use data intelligence to optimize the system, the transport system, and make sure it works well. And that's a good thing. You know, it can have its faults, but, you know, that's a good thing. But I want to ask what happens if you start with the citizen and think about mobility from their point of view. And I'll give an example of a little app that um, was created in London. It's called City Mapper. And I don't know if you, and you've been to London and you used City Mapper. If you go to London... You download CityMapper and use it. I think it's a great app. It's now on over the half the smartphones in London. And what CityMapper does, it takes all the real-time open data about transport in, in, in London, where all the trains, buses are at any one time and how they're moving. So all of that is mapped, and we know, we know that. And it gives you, with great algorithms, suggested journeys about how you should navigate the city. So, you know... The city map can geolocate us because our phones geolocate us. They know where we are, um, uh, as we were told, um, pretty much um, 24 hours a day. So it geolocates you. You say where you want to go, and it searches all the transport, where it is moving, where it's going to move, traffic flows, and so on. And it gives you suggested journeys. And it gives you the journeys, the combinations of bus and rail and so on. Um, and it can tell you... You know, if you're a low-income traveler, it'll give you the cheapest. It'll say, you know, this is the bus journey, this is a cheap journey. If it's raining, it often it's raining in London, it'll give you the driest um, uh, route. And it gives you the precise time, pretty much to the minute, that you will arrive. So all those barriers to using public transport, about not understanding it and lack of information and uncertainty about how, what time you'll arrive, it deals with all of those. And, you know, the example of, you know, Buses. People don't use buses because they don't understand the bus network in London, and it's kind of underused. So 
city mapper will tell you, well, you're here, this is how you walk to the bus stop, it's there, wait there, three minutes and a bus will come along, and then another one in five minutes, another one in seven minutes, if you want to pop into um, a shop. Um, go in that bus for eight stops, get off that bus, walk down these stairs um, to the tube, go to the end of the platform, because that's where the empty tube carriage will be, um, get on the tube carriage, you know, and get in, uh, over to your journey. So, it, you know, I think it really is optimizing the transport system. For transport for London, it's getting people using the system better, using space on the tube and so on. Um, it's low carbon, obviously encouraging low carbon cho- choices. And all the data that's created in CityMapper goes back into the transport system and helps to optimize and, and, ma- and get, make better transport choices. So I really like this app, and I like it because... It's using data. You know, Transport for London hasn't you know, had to provide a single extra yard of track, a single extra bus. This cheap app that a couple of guys you know, developed um, using open data is optimizing the transport system for about half of the users um, in, in London. And I think we're going to see a lot more of these um, ideas of mobility as a service, which start with a citizen and user, and think how digital can in- encourage and enhance um, their life. So in transport, you know, uh, not starting with the kind of transport system, the road and rails, but starting with you, how do you want to move? And it probably, first of all, it will ask, do you need to move? You know, can the service come to you digitally if you decide you want to move? What's the combination of walking, cycling, bus, rail, and so on that will get you to your destination? And how will it happen seamlessly? Because all that data across the city, the the connected city, will be talking to you, the connected citizen, and allow you to navigate the the city to your end. So I think I have a much more positive view of overlaying digital on the physical infrastructure of a city if we start from the citizen. And, you know, in that instance, who would want to own a car? anymore. So we can rethink transport from the citizen. I think mobility as a service will be a good way forward. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. <laughs> just because it is hot, uh, are there any questions at this point? Any thoughts that have been stimulated? I've got the mic so I can give it to anybody who's interested. Thanks. I just have a question about the city mapper, which I think is absolutely fantastic. Um, and I'm wondering, and this is perhaps speculative uh, on my part, but uh, would there be a possibility of adding the materiality of the people travelling to the city mapper? For example, how many stairs are there? How many prams do you have? Do you have a kid with a euphonium? <laughs> and how do you get... Uh, you know, how do you, you know, uh, and anyone who was here before heard my talk, which is on embodiment. So what I'm saying is what would be amazing it would be if you could extend that to add some of the embodied features about physically getting places, uh, perhaps if you're not so good with stairs for various reasons. Uh, yeah. Um, I think absolutely you can, you can I think you can add the physicality of the transport system I don't think you should add detail about the users really because that you know that would be a privacy a 
privacy invasion, probably. So we want to, you know, as much as possible, continue to anonymize the user. You know, we units, digits, almost traveling through that system as far as the system knows. But as you say, where there's steps, where there's ease of access, um, where it's too hot, all those kind of things, um, you can start to um, uh, start to add. Yes. I just want to make a comment about on the same train. We're a city that um, resists buses. We've got a real, uh, um, you know, Justin knows that. We don't adopt buses. Obviously, it's the cheapest way to do it. And we've got vast tracts of the city that are are very poorly serviced by public transport. So, obviously, the buses is a very immediate solution. We've also got a lack of interconnection in terms of the timetables, the co so, you know, across the whole city. Um, look, I, I, I just can't help but remember my mother, who was in a wheelchair, hunting for a, a disabled toilet uh, in her disabled vehicle and not able to find one. I just think your city mapper, you could apply it like that in this city and that would make a huge difference to a huge number of people across all sorts of um, areas and for all sorts of reasons. Just Thanks, Jerry. This is audience participation. <laughs> Jerry should keep the microphone, actually. No, yeah, well, only kidding. <laughs> All right. It is. I was just going to say, I've, so, I've just it downloaded quite it. quite well. And it actually has solved the bus dilemma for me. I had a bus phobia, being Melbourneian. If it's not on tracks, I don't know where it's going to go. City Mapper can tell me where the buses go, so it's helpful. Yeah, that's, it is. It, so, yeah, I was just going to say, you can download it. In London, it's been around for incredibly rich um, algorithms and data and people feed back into it so you know it really is the full package in, in London and obviously they, as they move into other cities as they are around the world it depends on how much transport data is open how good it is real time um, and um, so they, they will slowly build up um, I haven't tried it in Melbourne yet um, One of the things that you said which I think relates to what um, Justin Anaretti also mentioned was about Basically, how you would um, how you would reimagine city services from a citizen's point of view, rather than starting from the infrastructure point of view. And I was just want to come back to what's going on in Barcelona because there's been quite an effort uh, to think about city services, a range of city services, including things like garbage collection and so on. How is that? You know, is that changing the way you you start to respond to d- designing? Um, spaces? Are people more engaged now? Are they happier? Well, uh, first of all, to say the fact that um, issues of transportation or waste management or water irrigation of parks and everything, the fact that all those actions are becoming platformatized, and I'm inventing that word, I am pretty sure about it, but at the moment that they become uh, accessible through platforms and they are becoming services, then of course the accessibility is, is much wider, no? Like we are democratizing in a way big part of, of all those processes. So that's changing how users are interacting with that uh, services and, and, and the city. And of course it's also changing the way that we plan that infrastructure. One of the very interesting moments... Oh, your mic stopped working. Uh, 
I can also speak loud. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> One of the very interesting uh, moments of my very, very small, almost inexistent office is when um, they asked me from the City Council of Barcelona to uh, create a technical guide of how to implement information and, and, and communication technologies in order to create a guide for the public space. So where would we need to have fiber optics or sensors or gateways or Wi-Fi nodes or, you know, like all these kind of words that... Some of us architects or designers were trying to avoid uh, to get to know how can we uh, um, implement them in the city as a kind of an infrastructure that it is more like bottom-up rather than top-down. So based on data in relation to the flow of people, based on data in relation to contamination, where would it make more sense to put sensors in the waste, in the waste cab, uh, uh, cab, in the waste truck? <laughs> So that uh, the whole um, uh, system of uh, waste collection is being more optimized. Because, you know, like in cities, I guess you know very well, it costs a lot of money to deal with the waste collection. It's usually externalized to a company, and then there is a very specific programmed route of those trucks. And same with the, with the public transportation. No? There is, everything is very programmed, very um, automated in a way that it is not receiving any feedback loop. So it's raining outside, and then we see that the park is being irrigated, irrigated because it was programmed to do at 6 o'clock in the afternoon every Tuesday and Thursday. Mm. So these kind of things are becoming um, um, a bit uh, obsolete as kind of a top-down infrastructures in the cities. And then uh, working with the data from the small uh, uh, scale, uh, it could allow to design or to plan more, more sustainable infrastructures. Yeah. Uh, on that point of planning, uh, when you were planning, Minister Justin, um, you know, you made a point before... I, I try to forget about that sometimes. No, because <laughs> I want you to be enthusiastic, and I, and I think um, you mentioned we need an overarching goal. And I just wonder, you know, when you are responsible for, for planning, I mean, are there overarching goals? Do we as, as citizens demand certain key things that you have confidence that we should be treating as services and, and aligning technology to Well, I think, I think there's a set of fundamental principles um, and that, that helps drive the system. But, uh, you know, the system is, is clunky and it's, uh, it's highly regulated, so it doesn't allow for innovation readily and it doesn't allow for, um, you know, recalibrating those systems uh, quickly particularly with technology. So the big challenge for government and for regulators and policy makers now is their ability to respond uh, rapidly. And, and we see that with the likes of Uber and the taxi and licence industry. It's likely we, we could see that with uh, you know, autonomous vehicles. If, if you just reintroduce autonomous vehicles to replace the vehicles we have, then it'll just be a debacle. But you've got to reset the policy and recalibrate it and bear in mind all the things that have, built, have been built into the pre-existing regulation over time. Mm. And um, for want of no better reason for government than fundraising. So the example I like to use is when there are autonomous vehicles and the city's streets are filled with autonomous vehicles, instead of replacing one-person vehicles, they'll be replaced with empty vehicles looking for a lift yeah. or looking to give somebody a lift. But the issue is they won't speed. So there'll be no... There'll be no fines. So you, you straight away a state government can wipe out $200 million worth of revenue. 
So there's services that come come with that. You know, we always suspected that, didn't we? So you know, something like that. So yeah. there are a whole lot of issues that relate to the why the policy is what it is, mm. how it's become what it is, and what you might need to do to recalibrate that. Looking at the new technology and the interference that it uh, you know, sets in place in a whole lot of ways. It's interesting. So it's, it's a d- disruptive to the, the current revenue models we've got. The revenue well, models we've well, got it's, are it's, unsustainable. It's anyway. disruptive to the status quo, not only an operational level, mm. but all the policy settings and the ability for um, regulators and policy makers to get on top of that quickly enough. It's like many of those ethical issues around uh, biotechnology some years ago that the policy makers took four or five, six years to catch up with once all the technologies had been developed. Mm. Um, and, but that was only you know, in certain areas, so they could catch up. But yep. this will be trying to understand platforms as they take off in a whole lot of regulated areas pretty quickly in the next five, six years. Yeah. Okay, yeah, it's, a, it's amazing also. I was just thinking about democracy, and you mentioned, you've all mentioned in some respects data and, and re-democratising various aspects of the way people can get involved. Um, could we actually raise the bar from a community point of view, from the bottom up? I mean, I'm thinking, I'm going to lead into Jane Burry's um, talk, because I live in a suburb where there are tram stops and bus stops without seats and without uh, shade, and people are forlornly standing there, either in the sun or the rain, wondering or sitting, in fact, against someone's fence, uh, wondering when the bus is going to come, if the bus is going to come. And people seem to be resigned to that kind of reality. And I wonder whether there's a smart way for people to send instant feedback to whoever is responsible for that, to say, excuse me, my grandmother um, is sitting or standing or hobbling or suffering on the street waiting for to do something good, which is ostensibly good for the environment and good for the city. So you know, maybe with, we should have a, a sort of like the feedback loop app the, maybe it's just got two buttons, happy or sad, or, you know, fist or finger, or I don't know. Um, but just yeah. say, there's no excuse for that. You yeah. know, every vehicle is tracked. We know where every vehicle is every moment of, of time yep. now. So there's no excuse for the transport authorities not to have that data, not to share that data. I agree. I agree entirely. And one of the things that upsets us about that is that we, we, we um, mention... I was mentioning, and Jerry mentioned also, you know, people being uncomfortable, you know, remarkably uncomfortable with, with the way they are existing in cities. And um, and on that issue of comfort, we've just come from a conference on low carbon built environments and comfort on the inside of buildings is certainly prominent in, in thinking. But how does it influence the way we would deal with urban design and um, and so I'm leading into Jane Burry, who wants to talk about air. A hot air on an afternoon like this. Um, what about we've got the smart city, we've got the regenerative city, we've got the responsive city, and we have the respiratory city. Jane. Thanks, Peter. But now, since I've got the microphone, yeah, <laughs> I'm going to answer your question a little Great. bit because we did do a stu- studio a few years ago that was funded by IBM um, in Vietnam, looking at at. Uh, ride to school for the uni students there and we got it and our students got this all worked out so the whole uh, it came after the MIT project around smart buses and knowing exactly when your bus was going to come and the bus knowing all about how many of you there were at the bus stop 
Um, but, you know, so we, we tied it in with the local culture and the coffee shops there. Uh, you know, we tied the, so the buses stopped at the coffee shops. The, the kids got their uh, tickets in the coffee shop. You got, the more you rode the bus, instead of using your polluting uh, scooter, the more free coffees you got. So, you know, there's lots of answers to this question. Anyway, um, yeah, I think cities respond to many things, I was going to say, and not all of them are people. Some of them are ideals and visions, and I'm looking to Areti. And, um, you know, it was hard having Areti speak first because we're both architects and we probably share a lot of the same ideals. And usually I beat my gums about how important it is that we really get our analysis and our real-time feedback back in right into early design when we make the decisions way before we sort of get really expert and onto things. But today I'm not going to talk about that because Areti's already been so very eloquent. Um, what I'm going to say is that I was born in London and it was eight years after the worst and most uh, devastating and killer f- smog that London ever experienced. In fact, 4,000 people died that winter. There was p- still plenty of smog uh, when I was growing up, but they'd had the first uh, Clean Air Act by then, so things were on the up and up. And one of my, uh, my sticky story is that one of my very early memories is um, all the neighbours coming around to my house. And what was weird about it was it's quite common for all the women in the street in those days to come around your house, but it was really unusual for all the dads and the men to turn up. And they were all hunched together against the, uh, against the wall next to the living room, And it turned out they were looking at our new thermostat. And I I was quite small then, so I would have had to drag a chair over. I couldn't even see the thermostat. I could just see all the dads. Um, But this was really the beginning of kind of central control in the home. Uh, This was We were the first in the street who replaced all our coal fires and our coal stove in the kitchen uh, with an oil-fired central heating system. Um, And, you know, you could just... It wasn't quite like Nest, but, you know, you could just nudge it and be at any temperature you wanted. And um, so my feeling now is that we really paid the price for that. I mean, we we really have embraced that. We've embraced it in Melbourne, which uh, I know we're all a bit hot. But I'm I'm just happy because I brought my plastic thing. And and, and, uh, Matilda's got a much more elegant one. But but I'm kind of enjoying this kind of phenomenological experience. And I know I'm going to remember this day that we all kind of sweltered in M Pavilion in a way that I never would have remembered it if I'd been across in the air conditioning in the NGV. Um, so Roberta Vaganti was here recently from Milano Polytechnic in Melbourne, and he was talking about business and design, and he was talking about the fact that we buy things we want, we buy things we need, but most of all, we buy things we love. And of course, he's Italian, so he can do that much. He can do love much better than I can, um, but... Um, you know, so I think there is another story around air. You know, we've, it, it's sort of amazing that literally more than half a century on, we're still kind of celebrating our, our, our um, rest in peace coal. And, you know, finally in the last few weeks, we've, we've had these wonderful celebrations that the UK and Germany is committing to a date when they'll be completely coal-free. A lot of the world isn't. And, of course, it's going to save a lot more than 4,000 lives a year, it's going to save hundreds of thousands, probably millions of lives a year to get rid of coal. So it's funny that that st- story is still running. And that's a really, really important story and one that we really should engage in, I think, in Australia 
Um, that's my belief, anyway. I'll just put it out there. Um, but I think there is another story around air. Um, it is sort of bread and roses story. Uh, that it is, we do live in a really beautiful medium. Um, and the fact that it sort of gets hot and humid and then you have little zephyrs. And um, that's kind of important. In fact, we've, we've even, over the last few years, in architecture, we've not done a bit of research that shows that it is pretty important that you really sense the frequencies of air movement that you feel. It's just very much like sight and sound and that nobody actually knows what those are. So that was sort of looking a little bit at adaptive uh, comfort inside. Um, but here we are all are outside, so I think it's a lovely place to talk about because we can really debate this, whether we like being this uncomfortable or not. Um, but um, really, you know, Melbourne, we have a perfect climate. Um, it's not always the same. changes incredibly rapidly, but it's, it's temperate. How often is it seriously, seriously uncomfortable? Um, do we really need the juggernaut of sealed spaces and ubiquitous air conditioning at uh, 21 degrees around the year. Can that really be energy saving for us? Apparently, apparently it is. I don't know. I'm not an engineer. But I was in Hamburg very recently and I was in a room with 500 people uh, sharing the same air um, and I could see no evidence of any uh, mechanical or air conditioning in the room. It just had a whole lot of little vertical um, slits that opened on the side of the room. And the average midwinter temperature there is minus two. I think the average midsummer temperature is about 21. Obviously, there's a few more extremes than that that go on. Um, so if they can do it, why can't we? I'll just leave it with the back. Thanks. It's, I mean, it's, one of the, it's another one of those, those factoids that um, researchers know well that uh, when we are overindulged in air-conditioned spaces, we actually begin to adapt psychologically and physiologically to a much narrower range of comfort settings. And so it ends up becoming a maladaptation physiologically and psychologically to, to climate change. Uh, it also reminds me that perhaps, you know, when we talk about smart citizens, we need to include our own biological and, and psychological smarts in that as well and the kind of feedback that we can get. Uh, comfort, codified may be narrowing and limiting our opportunities for delight. And sometimes we have the most delightful experiences when we're far too hot and sweaty or far too cold, and, you know, they're the ones that we remember. So I think that's a, it's a very interesting and poignant intervention here. Um, speaking, and we're really at that level of considering personal um, experiences in cities, and so I'd like to bring David Singleton up here. Uh, David... I think is coming back to the theme that we were raising before about how smart cities need um, to really be focused on serving the needs of the people. Thank you. Um, I was late arriving because I got a dumb Uber. <laughs> and, it's, and it's quite uh, real. In fact, it is my opinion, I haven't studied it or am I submitting it for a thesis, but I think that Ubers are getting dumber, or at least the drivers are getting dumber. Um, and I think that that's an interesting, you know, that's kind of a, 
a reflection on what our brave new world could be if we don't avoid it uh, quite strenuously because um, it's very easy to to believe that uh, you know that technology is going to lead to this brave new world but I think it's there's also quite a lot of evidence to suggest that that might not be the world we want and um, the technology companies uh, are very adept at turning up in great numbers at smart cities conferences and showing off all their wonderful newest kit and it's very impressive but the question is for me and I'm an engineer so I'm supposed to be impressed by all this stuff but I'm quite an old engineer so maybe I'm not as impressed as I used to be um, I think the question is how how do we make sure that the community, the people, uh, have a chance to influence the way this technology is used rather than simply seeing the latest, latest app and downloading it and having it you know, come into their iPhone, take over their iPhone, change everything. You wonder why your battery's running down three times as fast as it used to. All the wonderful things we've, we've got used to. So one of the reasons I was attracted to um, take on the role at Swinburne with the Smart Cities Research Institute was the vision that there would be five research institutes working together um, under you know, one roof, one virtual roof. And I think that that's very important. I think we've got quite a way to go, but we've only been going for six to eight months. We've got quite a way to go to understand how to have those five research institutes collaborate in, in addressing the sort of human side of, of uh, developing uh, the world of the future for us. But it's, it is fundamentally important and you know, I don't have any desire to grow up in a, in a totally technological world and I certainly hope my grandchildren will not. I hope they'll still be able to discover very human things. It's, it's a little hard to... Well, it's possible to see how they might be less able to do that and I think that's quite worrying and something we need to be wary of. I, um, the last thing I'd like to talk about is our ability now, and Lucida, have you spoken? Good. So maybe, maybe you're going to talk about this too. It's about our ability to understand the community's views on what, you know, what our options might be. And it might be about major transport infrastructure projects, which always seems to get the community very much involved. Or it might be about the way we want to shape uh, a new suburb. Or it might be about, it might be about you know, same-sex marriage. It could be any topic where the community are entitled to have a view. And um, we now have available to us 
far more sophisticated techniques to glean the community's view without doing surveys, which is what we used to do, and indeed without doing um, postal ballots, which I suspect are subject to a certain amount of abuse, uh, may have been in the most recent one. Um, So I hope Lucinda will talk about her her baby uh, in this space. I think it's very, very important. When we look at what Infrastructure Victoria have been doing here in Victoria in, in trying to find new ways to engage with the community in terms of community uh, perspectives on major infrastructure investments, I think that's, um, that's a move in the right direction and it's interesting that in New South Wales they haven't really tried that yet, uh, but might be about to. So, you know, Australia continues to be a continent divided by a whole variety of different beliefs, whether it's rail gauges or uh, football rules or um, how one might go about planning for major expenditure of uh, public funds. Thank you. Yeah, so technology is not always smart, Uber. It's a, it's a, a wake-up call for the debate there. And Lucinda, you've been ably sort of put on the spot, so you're the next speaker. Would you like to come up and respond to David's request? Uh, We've been sitting for a little while, so can you just all stand up, please, for a moment? I know it's warm. Perhaps you don't want to move around. Um, Sit down if you don't have a smartphone. Anyone? Great. We've all got smartphones. Sit down if you are not on Twitter. A few of you. Sit down, if you are on Twitter, if you have not posted about this event yet. Okay. Right. So I think at the start of the event, they shouted out a hashtag, smart citizen. Smart citizen. Okay. So sit down, please. Thank you. Uh, If you are on Twitter and if you have a smartphone with you, I would encourage you to post about this event since it's about smart cities. So we should be sharing the conversation. And now that I have your data, let me uh, move forward. Um, So I'm an urban designer. So why am I interested in data? And I want to share a little bit about my story there. So as an urban designer, uh, my goal in life is to create places and cities that, that work for everyone. And I've designed a lot of places that are vibrant and active and connected and sustainable. But I wonder if we really measured those, how many of those spaces actually meet that goal? I think if we're really honest, is how many of our visions for vibrant and connected places really achieve that in reality? And I guess the question I've been asking in the past five or six years is why not? And what else can we do? I don't think we've got any shortage of expertise or best practice. I think we've researched what's necessary to create places that thrive but we so often fail to achieve them. And in Australia, you don't have to look very far to see that places aren't working. Uh, In fact, if you look statistically at our our suburbs and neighbourhoods, loneliness is now as likely to kill you as smoking or heart disease. 
So if loneliness is one of our leading causes of death, what does that say about the type of cities that we're building and how can we do better? And I think there is a huge amount that we can learn from startup thinking about uh, how we build cities. So if I just go back to smartphones for a moment, I mean, the way that a smartphone is built and the way that a city is built is completely different, although I think we're getting better. A smartphone or, in fact, any piece of good technology is designed by user testing, by customer research, uh, by iterating, starting small and finding out what works through small experiments and then scaling that up. Our cities often present an opposite view where we we set a goal for where we might want to be in 20 and 30 years and then we start working towards it, often with, with engagement but with very little in the way of user testing. And I think Henry Ford famously said, you know, if you ask people what they want, they would have said a faster horse. So asking people what they want won't necessarily solve this problem. But how do we actually user test cities and understand how they work? And so six years ago, I started a social enterprise called Co-Design Studio, which essentially runs living labs to user test cities. So by building prototypes in real space, we can understand how people experiment with cities. We've worked now in 100 neighbourhoods and that's had some great results and some failures along the way. But what I'm now interested in is thinking about how we actually create a model of sustainable change, which leads me to data analytics. So last year we launched Neighbourlytics. In fact, we only recently uh, actually launched the working platform, speaking of testing and iteration last month. But it's a social data analytics platform for neighbourhood development that harnesses social media data to help you understand the social life of a neighbourhood in real time. And if I think, if you think about a place that you love and feel connected to anywhere, perhaps it's the neighbourhood where you grew up, the main street where you like to have, go to a cafe or a public space, there are characteristics about that place that are memorable, uh, that are personal, but it's hard to measure them. And if we look at the metrics that we've used to assess the performance of cities, they tend to have been physical characteristics. Our planning codes talk about building heights, balcony depths, street widths, and I don't deny for a second that those things aren't important. But the experience of a place, its culture, its identity, the way that we connect with people, the way they build relationships and inclusion, has been very difficult to measure and therefore it's very difficult to plan for. So Neighbourlytics tries to understand the picture of what makes neighbourhoods unique by looking at social media data. Now, not everyone's on social media, that's true, but 17 million Australians are on social media, that's more than are enrolled to vote. So if we want a sample size, it's a reasonably good one, Uh, and that data set, as we heard just before, is increasing uh, dramatically uh, every year. And you know, as, a, as an early stage product, we're really interested in your feedback on how data like this can help us understand cities from a different point of view. Because what I'm fundamentally interested in is, is while we need to control building heights and setbacks, what if we measured our cities according to how happy people were, uh, what culture they created instead? And I think we now for the first time actually have the kinds of data that can give us indicators that might suggest how we do that. So I'm interested to chat to you more about that and I'm very interested uh, in this Smart Cities conversation and the work of Swinburne in particular, a few people there, I think is drawing together some threads that we really need to be thinking about and that's how data relates to social inclusion, relates to other kinds of innovation um, and so I encourage you to check out their programs if you're not already familiar. Thank you.
fantastic. It's, uh, it's, it's, it shifts the idea of the overarching goal, in a way, to um, one that we're not planning toward a future, you know, sort of set in stone, but rather some sort of an emergence and self-organisation around shared values and, and common needs. It's fascinating. Questions? Thoughts? Thanks, Peter. Fa- fantastic forum and wonderful speakers. I really love the idea about humanity, polycentrism, and happiness. Those are really powerful points. Um, I'll frame this question by an observation that my outlook is a highly positive vision of the future and that we're absolutely on track. But what I'd like to step it up for the panel a little bit, I was just uh, working hard on my PhD, Peter, and I happened to notice on Facebook that um, there was an artificial intelligence drone weaponized that could have facial recognition and come and target a particular citizen or class of citizens. And this was a pretty stunning video, a little bit fictional as it is, but all existing technology. And we've also just been at two days of environmental conference talking about the inertia of change and all the fantastic technologies and innovations that we have. And to briefly state this question powerfully, environmentally, socially, population is going to add another 3 billion people in the cities that we're talking about. That essentially, when you look at the rate of change, and we've all been in the sustainability movement, many of us, for many decades, the rate of change significantly, depending whose viewpoint you read, is lagging behind the incredible geometric or um, uh, multiplying level of change that we're seeing around us. So when you look at that systemic view... All right. Can data help us accelerate positive change? Anybody want to take that question? You've got your microphones down there, so you can grab those. That's quite a terrifying question, I think. Um, (laughs) I, I... I think we have to be positive about it, I think. Um, and I, I, can't, I probably can't answer that systemic question, but what I know is that there is lots of terrible ways that data could be used. And, in fact, the same data that we use for Neighbourlytics is currently used, being used by commercial agencies, like, say, for Zara, to work out where to locate their new store. So do we want to live in a city where Zara has the power to locate the stores but citizens don't have power to choose what characteristics make up their neighbourhood? No. So if we can use that same data for good, then I think we're on track. Um, But we've got to be on the front foot about it. So, yeah. I I think the big challenge is is how we adapt to that that potential rate of change and particularly with lots of systems and institutions that are not designed for that and a lot of that is you know our own democracy how do we how do we cater for that rapid change and the settings that we need to adjust when it's a, you know runaway train already so you know i think there's some enormous challenges there and, and uh, the ability to use some of those you know those apps um, and gather that data and use it pretty effectively and quickly is, is a really important tool and I look forward to somebody developing those in the, you know, in a quite a complex way before too long. Ready? To, yeah. To my view, I think that you know Cedric Price, and I'm pretty sure you know. He said um, 
technology is the answer, but what was the... He said, technology is the answer, but what was the question anyways, right? So technology is the answer, but what kind of questions we are doing, I think it is fundamental. What can we do today with technology is, is on the one hand, terrific. We can heal diseases. We can make uh, people's life better, disabled people's life better. And on the other hand, we can create drones that have face recognition and they kill you with a shot in the head. Yes, we can do that. The question, I think, is really to give power to the communities to understand and make the appropriate questions on the one hand. And on the other hand is um, open up the data because the data is there. It's not something that it just uh, came because of technology. It's not something that it was not there. It was always there. The only, t the only difference is that now we can visualize them. Now we can make them more transparent. So the question is, who is holding the data? No, a bit with what you were saying. The data is there and we need to share it among us. There are amazing, great stuff that they're being done by people that they are entrepreneurs or they are no experts with data, but just by accessing to open data of cities or neighborhoods, it's amazing the way that they are using them in order to make their lives and their community's life better. So I would also um, add that we shouldn't be negative about it, but we should be very, very careful of what is the questions that we are doing to the data and to all the technology. Let's hear from the audience. Yeah, so who's, a, who's afraid of people having their data? Are you worried? Yes? Why? Michelle? Um, because we are too trusting. I mean, uh, the internet was set up with this good faith of let's make everybody anonymous because people will do the right thing and we're seeing that that's not the case and now there's you know, thoughts and ideas of saying well, let's take away that anonymity. So the same with the data I think. I think we have this trust that people do the right thing with the data but I think there's plenty of examples of abuse of that and I think we will see oh. <laughs> Top of my head, no. <laughs> I could give you a positive example. I mean, when, with the recent um, uh, terrorism acts in Paris, I mean, I could go to the coffee shop next door, who was a French bar uh, coffee maker, and he shared the app so that I could find my young friends in Paris almost within minutes uh, on Facebook to find out if they were safe or they were not in the firing line. So, look, then there's plenty of examples of where, um, you know, Connectedness has been a very good outcome. Can I ask a question? Um, I just want to ask a question. What does it take um, from the politicians in the room, and we've got a couple ex-politicians, uh, what would it take uh, for us to make sensible decisions when we're at such an urgent point in terms of carbon-producing produ projects, um, the likes? I mean, we've, we've had in this state plenty of examples of cooperation. I start with the shilling fund when the women of Victoria pitched over three years a shilling so that female doctors could create the Queen Vic Hospital so that women were not dying in childbirth. And we also found the same cooperation when we had the drought years 
um, before the desal plant and people were incredibly cooperative in not using water and rationing water. So we do it, but as soon as with the dial goes back to normal, everybody goes, oh, well, you know, there's no tomorrow. But there is a tomorrow and it's urgent, it's pressing. So I put to the ex-politicians, the leaders in the room, and or is it that we're all leaders? We all have to be leaders. Well, I, th- I think there's an, op- there's an opportunity for a lot of goodwill to be developed off the back of a crisis, I suppose. You know, there was, there's an old saying, you know, nothing like a crisis to get things done. Sometimes the crisis has to arise and it, or people have to determine that it is. No, no, and I agree, I agree. Um, so, so the issue is it's about, you know, the level of... The, level of, um, the sense or the vibe in the public about, you know, the level of of how much of a crisis it is or it isn't. So once it becomes seen as a significant uh, issue in terms of a crisis, you can get a lot done and get it done pretty quickly. But sometimes it has to boil to that point or, or get to the boiling point rather than, than uh, just sort of let it simmer for a while. Or are we boiling frogs? And, well, and it might be. Might have, you know, it might be like the lobsters. You, know, oh. you turn it up and they don't know, like yeah. the frogs. Yeah. So um, Lucinda had a bit of a challenge which was about the right questions to ask. And I figured, before we wrap up the, the panel, what, what are your questions? Just because Jerry asked me to ask one. Um, I wanted to pose a question. On the one hand, we have the regulators, the planning schemes, the codes, the building regulations, and they good in the sense that they, well, you know, like with the flammable cladding, you want to have regulations and codes, but to what extent are they inhibiting the adaptability, the flexibility and the feedback of materiality and processes that were described by our speaker from Barcelona? Yeah, look, uh, I, I think, you know, that, that's that's the difficulty with a lot of the regulatory controls or the policy is... is uh, as you say, it's an inhibitor. It stops you from doing things rather than promote innovation and, and ideas. And, um, you know, maybe, maybe an outcome-based approach is better than a you-can't-do approach. Um, but, that, there's, you know, there's a big step change in that. I mean, one of the things I'm very mindful of um, in Melbourne is it's much easier to get a permit for a really large house than a small house, you know, which seems to me is just the most... Uh, extraordinary contradiction. You can get a permit for a really large building with a lot of little houses in it and a lot of little things in it. But if you want one little thing and put it in your backyard for your family or your grandmother, or, you know, it's really hard to do. And I think you know the, the, that's the sort of contradiction that the regulations uh, adhere us to rather than allow us to come up with some innovative ideas. Very quickly, just to say that it's a very valid question. We haven't spoken at all about it, and it's true that regulations are really keeping back a lot of innovation that is uh, related with uh, um, the so-called intelligent, smart, advanced city. So I would say that um, pilot projects might be an initial answer, so we need to really start testing things. It's the only way to evaluate, it's the only way to learn, to have feedback and go further and further, and it's the only way to convince the ones that they are setting the regulations that those solutions might eventually uh, happen. You know, there is a problem with um, administration decision-makers. I'm sorry. (laughs) 
He doesn't do it anymore. It's all right. And, and this is related with the fact that they always they're always interested into analyzing, into analyzing and analyzing and analyzing. And there is this kind of effect that um, I call analysis paralysis because it comes a moment that you actually do not do anything because you just want to analyze in order to understand better and better until you take a decision to have an action. So make an action, uh, have pilot projects, act in a very informal way, if so, in the beginning. I think it, it, it gives us a lot, especially for us coming from education. This is a kind of a way of, of really learning out of making and testing. I sort of want to answer both of those questions about talking about decision makers. You know, I, I think we don't have digitally literate decision makers, um, politicians and um, senior um, officials in government. And that's a real problem because, they, you know, the, the analog institutions and analog ways of doing things in a digital age, and it's just not good enough anymore. So digital is changing our city, changing our lives constantly. And our politicians and our, our decision makers are not on top of this. In the UK, you know, just an example, the average age of an elected official is 60. I'm not, I'm, it's not saying people at 60 can't be digitally literate, but most of them aren't. And so I think there's just... A, we, we, we need to get kind of... Rather than the way we did kind of 10 years ago, a big effort to, to educate our politicians and decision makers and le business leaders in sustainability. They, you know, there was a generation that we just had to teach it to. I think we're going to have to do the same with digital. And then the, there's a hope that they might be able to steer and regulate in, in ways that are sensible. Well, I, I reckon if, if we're going to house people on the 80th story, I wouldn't mind having a regulation like Hong Kong that says they've got to have cross-ventilation in certain minimum areas in their abode. Um, I don't know what's wrong with The only feedback, the only kind of data feedback that seems to be going back into the system is whether we can sell it or not, which we can. We have a very heated market. Um, so I, I wouldn't mind a little bit of regulation here and there. Thanks very much, mate. Uh, just to come in in uh, support of that, um, in addition to your very legitimate desire to have some regulation in a society in which if there's lack of regulation, you'll be sliced to ribbons as a consumer by more powerful interests, just to be you know, argumentative. The fact is there's a world of difference between innovation inhibiting regulation, which is bad regulation, and regulation which actually drives innovation. And indeed, some innovation in the built environment sector just will not happen without regulation. There is probably not a single thing holding back Australian innovation in building products and building materials and their application today than the absence of an effective building code that has a trajectory that drives innovation into the future. And it's not me making that up. If you talk to anybody in business who's in the business in Australia of building products and building materials, they will tell you that regulatory certainty would allow them to make the higher risk innovative investments in new product and new technology that will just not be possible as long as the country simply spins its wheels. And that is a small example of what you would also hear from the big end of town, including the Business Council of Australia in this city, about the need for certainty on the whole broader climate change issue 
That's what industry is screaming for. They are screaming for clarity from government. So we mustn't get into a mindset that immediately sort of juxtaposes regulation and policy against innovation. It's far, far, far too simple a view and indeed a directly wrong view in some cases. Fantastic, Sandy. Thank you. Um, there's also an aspect of, of it challenges the status quo, you know, because you have to, th to think about um, losing control of some aspects of, of urban regeneration, right? Because you're talking about experimenting. You're talking about trying something before it, you know, and putting it in reality before you've, you know, settled that it's, it's really going to work. And so, you know, perhaps um, that means that we've got to have different forms of governance which can control experiments in some way which are safe and productive. So I think it, it is very challenging. And, you know, to your point, there is that business model requirement for, for certainty. But it still begs the question, you know, what is, what's, the, what's, the, what's the driving goal? Is it a commercial goal or is it a, is it a social or, a, or a, a personal goal? Um, I wanted to wrap up because it, we're, we're at the end of our time, but I wanted to ask each of the panellists a, a fairly direct question about, you know, we, we tried to get beyond the buzzwords a little bit and understand more about what we mean by a smart city and how that can, and different ways of thinking about sustainability and, and um, livability and so on. But um, the, the question really is, what's the best way that we can empower citizens with our smarts so that we can start to, to see sustainability, livability, all these buzzwords sort of emerge as real qualities of the cities that we live in. So what, what do you think? What's the best way? Um, well, I think there's a couple, but I think, um, you know, cities have to continue to be inclusive. Um, if, if they're exclusive in any way, then, you know, there's a whole lot of compounding things that become more complicated and, and undermine a city and its operation and the, and the viability of a city over time. So it's, it's, it has to be inclusive. And um, bearing that in mind, the city has to work. Like, in, it actually has to function. So you, you can talk about high-level principles and you can talk about Millennium Goals or UN Development Goals, and they're all critically important. But if you're standing on a train in peak hour and uh, in somebody's armpit within their close personal space, or they're in my armpit normally, um, <laughs> and, and uh, somebody's got hay fever and they're sneezing on one another... You know, it's not really working that well. And that's, you know, so it's the bread and butter stuff that really counts. But it has to, has to work both ways. You can't ask people to make sacrifices when they're, you know, when they're in your armpit or you're in their armpit on a train. Um, expect them to make big sacrifices because they're already making those. So if a city's going to be inclusive, it has to be equitable and inclusive at the same time in order to achieve... But the high-level goals and the detailed, you know, nuanced um, successes. Uh, at Co-Design Studio, we recently did um, research with community organisations across Melbourne as to why don't people participate. And the number one factor that came back was relevance. And it's not that people don't care, but they couldn't see themselves in the question that was being asked or the plan that was being generated. And... So, yeah, I, I, but then when you ask people about their lived experiences, about two cities, where the lived experience of the train ride home or their neighbourhood or tangible ways that they would improve it, well, well then, like, they reel off suggestions. So probably coming back to your point earlier, I think we're not asking the right questions 
or we're not listening to the right ideas. Um, and I think connecting the dots on where the existing ideas are and asking questions around them is, is a way to bring citizens into the picture. I, I also think that it's, it's really about engaging people and, and allow them to participate. It's not always to, to engage people, but I think there is uh, an issue first of raise awareness. They need to understand that they are an important part of it and they need to start realizing and allow them. I mean, we, are, we as all, we cannot just be consumers of anything, consumers of ideas, consumers of political decisions. We need to be also producers of that. So we need to start understand that it's not anymore a passive attitude, but we really can make a change together. So engage them and, and raise awareness and allow them to participate. Um, agree with all of those. I'll, I'll add one, which is feedback loops. I think one of the promises of smart cities is dynamic feedback loops because you can interact with the city and citizens in real time, in big, you know, big crowds, big groups across infrastructure. And those positive feedback loops, when people understand what the, you know, what their actions are doing and what uh, what the difference is, giving people feedback and making things better and visibly better will encourage people to act. good being tail end Charlie but one um, look I think we need to find ways to make the so called smart city real for those who live in the cities not just, not just something you read about in the good weekend but, but um, so we, we have to we have to provide something that people want and we have to tie that to the fact that this is a result of the city becoming smarter. And I think there's so many opportunities to do that. Mostly they will rely on political will. Um, we're uh, terribly short on that in this country, but I think the cities are the places that are doing that. So the city of Melbourne is doing that kind of thing and um, they can then you know, show what it could be. I'm just reading that um, Australia is about to lodge its its uh, its first response on the Sustainable Development Goals, Goal 11, which is um, what is it? Uh, making cities and human settlements inclusive, safe, resilient, and sustainable. A lot of buzzwords there, but there are, but there are a lot of people now pulling together examples of how this is being done in Australia and hopefully that will provide the sorts of examples that I'm talking about. Thank Terrific. you. Great. Jane. Well, I've just recently started travelling by train and the first, um, after being in Melbourne for a long time without travelling on the train, and initially we just couldn't get to grips with one another and it just kept going wrong for me and the app was never quite the same as the reality. Um, but now that we're sort of intuitively in tune with one another, I think it's very, very smart already. You know, now that I know to get on any train, go to Flinders Street, and immediately one comes in and takes me in the other direction. You know, it's all... Uh, so there's a, there's a lot of algorithms out there already kind of uh, working things out. I, I just always get a seat. Um, maybe I'm lucky in the, the routes that I take. I, 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 haven't had, I haven't had your armpit yet, Justin, but, you know... Uh, it could be an app for that. Pardon? Yeah. Justin's armpit, where are you? <laughs> uh, 
Um, so, you know, there's some things really working very, very well. So I, I'm, I'm for the, uh, the incremental kind of approach that we just, we, we tweak away, we innovate, we encourage our millennials to, to keep thinking hard like they are around these systems and um, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. Well, I think that's a great way to end the, the session. It's going to be good. Can you please join me in thanking our, our panel this afternoon? If you'd like to continue the conversation, um, as was mentioned, we have the, the Swinburne Smart Cities Research Institute, Director Mark Burry sitting in the front there, uh, and um, you can take it in that direction. Thank you.